Hi, Jodcast. Could you give me quality astronomy news? Oh, yes. Quality interviews as well? Oh, yes. My questions asked to an astronomer? Yes. Night sky? Yes. I suppose I got loads of long intros to listen to. Oh, no, no. The Jodcast. Blaming the Torchwood Gremlins for LHC problems. With Megan Argo, David Alt, Ian Morrison, Nick Rattenbury, and Roy Smits. The Jodcast. October issue. Hello and welcome to the October issue of the Jodcast. And joining me on this issue, we've got Roy Smits and Nick Rattenbury up in Manchester. Hi guys. Hello Dave. Hello Dave. And on the show this issue, we have an interview with Jim Cordes about things that go bump in the night. We have The Night Sky with Ian Morrison and, of course, your feedback. Before all of that, here's the news with Megan Argo. In the news this month, first beam for the LHC, dwarf galaxies dominated by dark matter, and Hubble detects a peculiar new transient. On Wednesday, September the 10th, the first beam was successfully steered around the full 27 kilometres of the Large Hadron Collider, the world's most powerful particle accelerator. After more than 20 years of planning and construction, involving an estimated 10,000 people from 60 different countries, the first beam of protons was accelerated to almost the speed of light at 10.28am. Operated by CERN, the European Organisation for Nuclear Research, the LHC is located 100 metres underground near Geneva in Switzerland. There are many experiments which will use the highest energy particle collisions ever generated in an accelerator to probe the structure of matter. It is hoped that experiments at the LHC will produce the first experimental evidence for the so far theoretical Higgs boson, explaining the mechanism which generates mass. Some of the experiments are also designed to investigate the reasons for nature's preference for matter over antimatter, thought to have been created in almost equal quantities in the Big Bang. The LHC is an incredibly complicated piece of engineering, containing enough cable to stretch around the equator almost seven times, and many superconducting magnets which are used to manipulate the beams of particles. Unfortunately, just over a week after the first beam was directed around the ring, a fault developed during testing in Sector 34, the final sector to be commissioned. Investigations so far suggest that the likely cause was a faulty electrical connection in the bus bar connecting two magnets. Normally operating at a temperature of 1.9 Kelvin and cooled by liquid helium, the magnets become superconducting, allowing them to conduct current without resistance and generate the large magnetic fields required to steer the beams. Early reports from CERN suggest that the fault in the bus bar caused what is known as a quench, where the magnets started to heat up, losing its superconducting properties. The quench caused the connection to melt, resulting in a helium leak. The whole section must now be heated up so that engineers can carry out repairs and then cooled back down to 1.9 Kelvin before operations can resume, a process which could take up to two months. A project using the Hubble Space Telescope to search for distant supernovae in order to measure the expansion rate of the universe has discovered an unusual event which does not match any known class of transients. The event, known as SCP-06-F6, was discovered in observations made in 2006 by astronomers working on the Supernova Cosmology Project. Its properties, however, are very different to other supernovae. First appearing on an image taken on the 21st of February 2006, the transient brightened over a period of 100 days before fading away over a similar length of time, peaking at magnitude 21 on May 17, 2006. In contrast, supernova light curves generally have faster rise times and are far less symmetric than that of SCP-06-F6. The transient also has no previously known host galaxy or progenitor star in images taken prior to February 2006, and spectra of the event do not match anything previously observed. Showing only five features, all of them broad absorption lines, the spectra of this object look nothing like supernova events. With so few spectral features, Getting reliable identification of the lines is difficult, and, since the line identifications are often used to calculate the redshift, and hence the distance for an object, it is also not clear how far away this event was, or even whether it was galactic or extragalactic in origin. The results, to be published in an upcoming issue of the Astrophysical Journal, 
have puzzled astronomers, with various theories being put forward to explain the unusual characteristics of the event. One suggestion is the explosion or tidal disruption of a carbon star at a distance of two billion light-years, due to a possible correlation of the absorption features with the spectrum of molecular carbon. Adding to the puzzle, an X-ray source was also detected at the same position as SCP-06-F6 by XMM-Newton during the fading of the optical source, but no X-ray emission was seen either before or after the event. This X-ray source is difficult to explain if the event was indeed the explosion of a carbon star with a relatively low temperature of between 5,000 and 6,000 Kelvin. So far, this event is unique, but new telescopes dedicated to searching the sky for transients, such as the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, may discover more such events which could help solve the mystery. Orbiting the Milky Way are more than two dozen dwarf galaxies. Many of these are so faint that they were initially thought to be globular clusters in the halo of our galaxy, rather than galaxies in their own right. Many of these ultra-faint dwarf spheroidals have been discovered as statistical overdensities in the number of stars in data from the Sloan Digital Sky Survey. One of these low-luminosity galaxies, located in LEO, has been found to have an unusually high dark matter content. Using spectra obtained with the Keck telescope, the team, led by Marla Geher at Yale University, examined the motion and metal content of 24 stars within the object. Although the luminosities of these faint satellite systems are comparable to those of globular clusters, observations show that they have both high mass-to-light ratios and low metal contents, in contrast to typical globular clusters. These observations with the Keck telescope confirm that this particular object is a dwarf galaxy, albeit the least luminous currently known, with the total luminosity only 340 times that of the Sun. Mass measurements, however, show that the mass contained within the central 300 parsecs is 10 million solar masses, making this the system with the highest mass-to-light ratio found so far, and implies that this is the most dark matter-dominated galaxy currently known. Understanding systems like these at the extreme end of the mass and luminosity scale, and how they evolved, is important in understanding galaxy formation at all scales. Nearby dark matter-dominated systems are also interesting targets for indirect dark matter detection experiments, which hope to detect gamma rays created in particle annihilation events. And finally, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence has been underway for many years, using many different ideas, but now a group led by John Leonard at the University of Hawaii have suggested that we may already have observed alien signals without even realising it. The group suggests that information could be sent by manipulating stars known as Cepheid variables, which vary in magnitude on timescales directly related to their peak brightness. This makes them very useful for measuring distances to nearby galaxies, and so likely to be monitored by any sufficiently developed civilization, say the authors. The variation in brightness arises due to changes in the star's atmosphere. As ionised helium builds up, the star becomes dimmer, until the atmosphere expands and the ions recombine, restarting the Cepheid cycle. The group suggests that messages could be sent by firing a beam of neutrinos into such a star, heating its core and causing it to brighten early. Although the authors dub this the Cepheid Galactic Internet, they admit that the data rate is somewhat slow. A Cepheid variable with a period of one day would only be able to transmit about 180 bits per year. Thanks, Megan. Now, with some other news, Roy and Nick, what we've got in the feedback bag this month. So we have feedback from Michael Van Voren, who read in an in-flight magazine that Brian May, Queen guitarist, is now an astrophysicist. A further discovery was made by Joe Jones, who found out that Brian Cox is now indeed a professor. Further feedback from Tom Grajalewski and Jeremy, who both seem to appreciate the Jotcast. Thank you all very much for giving you our feedback. And thanks also to Chris Ward, who sent in uh, an idea for a Stargate intro to the Jodcast. So thank you very much. You'll be hearing that sometime very soon. And of course, if you have any ideas for intro outros that you'd like to hear us parody on the Jodcast, or any questions for the extra issues of the Jodcast, then please let us know. And you can always send your feedback in on the website at www.jodcast.net. Send us an email, fill in the web form, send us a postcard. Again, we love receiving postcards. Send us a letter. Please let us know how we're doing on the Jodcast. We love receiving your feedback. And, of course, some people have been active on the Facebook group. 
And in fact, there are 252 members now of the Facebook group, and there has been a lot of debate on the wall and in the discussion forums there. A new post has been created by Colin Stewart of the University of Manchester, wondering what people think of the first video episode of the Jodcast. And Carlo Prushtak in Croatia said that it's quite informative. It's a nice choice for the first video episode, starting from the basics, to actually see inside Jodrell Bank and what it looks like. So thank you very much for that uh, for that feedback, and do please check out the new video episode and let us know what you think of it. It's very different to the audio podcast. It's short, snappy, and you get to see things, obviously. And also on the Facebook wall, thanks to Phil Pavlin and to Nick Everts, uh, who wonders how he can get a Jodcast T-shirt. Yes, and to all of those out there who would like to purchase a Jodcast T-shirt, we are working on ways in which we can do this via a website. Do stay tuned. If you live anywhere near Jodrell Bank Observatory, you can always pop into the visitor center where they are on sale. But do stay tuned. We are working on a way for selling the Jodcast merchandise, which currently comprises just of T-shirts, via the web. So we're working on it. Do stay tuned. And of course, if you see anyone wearing a Jodcast T-shirt, either go up to them and say hello, or tell us that you've seen someone wandering around. I've certainly been wearing mine around London and around Birmingham in the past uh, few weeks. So please let us know if you if you spot someone wearing a Jodcast T-shirt. The more random the place, the better. Yes, indeed. And also, Stephen Dyson says that he's li- he listens to the Jodcast on the 746 to London Cannon Street. Uh, which he thinks is a weird place anyway, and he says that Tim was right. It was a brilliant interview about dark matter. It's not just a convenient phrase to him anymore. He now has some idea of what it is. Keep up the good work. So and that's the news from Facebook. Now I caught up with Professor Jim Cordes, who was visiting Manchester for a conference on pulsars, to talk with him about the time variable universe. I'm joined now by Professor James Cordes from Cornell University. You're a professor at Cornell, and uh, thank you very much indeed for for joining us. Glad to be here. Now uh, you are here joining in a uh, conference which uh, Manchester has been holding on uh, pulsars. So is that your main field of research? It, it has been for about 30 years. Um, so I, I think we could say that I've branched out in a few other things, but it's uh, I, I always come back to pulsars. And I even every ten years have the thought, gee, I should do something else. <laughs> But、uh, pulsars keep giving and giving. What's the attraction for you for studying pulsars? Oh,、uh, the attraction. I guess there are a few of them. One is that、uh, they, they're really bizarre astrophysical objects.、Uh, for one,、um, I think the other is that. Well, they're bizarre astrophysical objects, but the kinds of physics that you can probe by studying pulsars. Uh, is immense. I mean, it ranges from, say, condensed matter physics. Imagine things at densities such that if you had a teaspoonful of the material, it would weigh 100 million tons. You know, that's pretty exotic. And then these things radiate in ways that nothing else in the universe uh, does. Um, you can use them as clocks to probe gravity.、Um, they have all kinds of Maybe not day-to-day type practical applications, but certainly from a scientific point of view, they're very practical. Remind us just briefly what a pulsar is and how it forms. Right. Well, a pulsar is a type of neutron star.、Uh, we believe that most, if not all, of these objects form in supernova explosions. So you have a massive star, maybe ten times the mass of the sun.、Uh, the core of the star implodes, and the rest of the star explodes. And what's left over in that core is a neutron. It's either going to be a neutron star or a black hole. As the core of the star implodes, if it becomes either a black hole or a neutron star, it's going to be spinning very rapidly. The other thing that happens is the magnetic field builds up. So you've got this combination of spin and high magnetic field. That combination produces electricity that can accelerate particles that radiate. Emission and、uh, which we can detect quite readily. So these things are exotic. They're about ten kilometers in in radius.、Uh, so the size of you know a, a typical city.、Uh, they have as much mass, if actually more mass than what the sun has. So all packed into that small volume.、Mm. And how do we detect them? We detect them because、uh, the combination of spin 
and the radiation is that the, the radiation is beamed. So it's very much like a lighthouse uh, with its uh, lamp spinning around and beamed. Uh, so if that beam points at us uh, once per rotation, we'll see a pulse. And then because of the rotation, we see a, re a repetition of that pulse. Mm. Hence the name pulsars. Mm. Now, we've uh, heard before on the Jodcast about... Uh, all the exciting physics you can do with, with pulsars from uh, Michael Kramer, particularly in testing uh, Einstein's general theory of relativity down to extremely uh, high precision. Uh, you are working on an interesting field currently on pulsars, about pulsars which turn themselves off occasionally and then back on again. Tell us a bit about this. Okay, well, that, that is a, a sort of a hot area. Uh, we've gotten accustomed over the last 40-plus years since pulsars were discovered to think of them as these nicely periodic objects where basically you see the lighthouse regularly, you can count on it being there. But what we also know is that the, the methods that we use to survey the sky to find these things have also relied on that periodicity, if you want to call it that, as part of our scheme for finding them. And as a consequence, we've missed those objects that for whatever reason that nature has come up with, are, are not so reliable. They are they're not repetitive. They, they'll burst, they'll spit out a few pulses, and then they'll be quiet for maybe an hour, maybe a month. Um, so those things we have not done such a good job on finding. A few years ago, uh, we started applying algorithms that would let us see those things, and we have found some of them. And what's interesting, it looks like if you talk about the Milky Way galaxy that we live in, and ask, well, how many neutron stars are of the ordinary pulsar type and how many are, are these um, intermittent type, uh, the numbers are probably about the same or very similar. We're, we're missing half of, the, half of the pulsars. Yeah, exactly. And if, if our government were to conduct a census and didn't count half the people, I think there would be an uproar, right? <laughs> well, certainly there could be some poor conclusions drawn uh, about the population. Right. Yes. <laughs> So pulsar surveys have been conducted in the past, and presumably, as you say, some of the pulsars, 50% of the pulsars possibly simply weren't going beep at the time. Right. So what could possibly be the reason why a pulsar, this really dense object, which seems unstoppable with its, with its angular momentum and producing these pulses, how do you turn it off? Yeah, that's right. Well, the things are obviously spinning. Uh, that doesn't stop. They have, they're like a spinning top, like a gyroscope, that you can't shut that off, but you can shut off the radiation. So it's sort of like the guy in the lighthouse with his hand on the light switch uh, and playing games on us. So I think the, the honest answer is that we don't really understand the intermittency of these things. But we have some ideas, and one of my pet ideas is that, well, the way that these things work is the neutron star is highly magnetized, uh, because of the spin, as I said before, they, um, they generate electricity that those electric forces accelerate particles and produce um, the radiation. Now, that whole chain of events can get disrupted if, for example, material from outside the pulsar were to enter its magnetosphere, as we call it. And, and indeed, we think that may be what's taking place uh, um, um, for these intermittent pulsars. So, for example, um, a student of mine and I have done an analysis uh, looking at the situation where if there's an asteroid belt around a neutron star, um, that's perhaps a big if, but you can make a good case for it, and I could talk about that. But if you have such an asteroid belt uh, or just a collection of rocks, you don't need a lot of material, but if those rocks individually spiral in uh, and enter the magnetosphere, they will disrupt that whole chain of events that leads to the radio emission that we see. Presumably uh, these asteroids are, well, they're, they're much, much larger in relative size to a neutron star than asteroids would be to our own sun, for instance. That's correct. So the, are you talking about um, the asteroids actually physically impacting the neutron star or just passing close? or No, it's actually ver a very interesting process. A rock-like object, uh, let's say an asteroid that's maybe 100 meters in size, maybe a kilometer in size. As you say, that's that's pretty big relative to the neutron star. But anyway, those things cannot get all that close to the neutron star because the neutron star is this 
kind of monster-type object. It's hot. It's about a million degrees temperature, so it radiates ultraviolet and X-ray light, and that light can evaporate the asteroid. Uh, you've also got this other radiation coming from the magnetosphere. That can evaporate the asteroid. So it's sort of a game of what what happens first. Does the asteroid get in close enough, or does it get evaporated too far from the neutron star to make a difference? And the answer to that question depends on what kind of pulsar you have. Some pulsars are spinning very quickly, hundreds of times per second. Uh, others are spinning maybe more like once per second. It's the slow ones that tend to be older and a little cooler. We think the asteroids can get into the magnetosphere. But they don't get all that far. They do get evaporated. But they've gotten in close enough to do the damage. So basically to disrupt the radiation coming off the, the, the neutron star, the spinning neutron star. Or really, it's the radiation coming from the magnetosphere. Because the radio emission that we see or detect is actually coming from the magnetic field surrounding the neutron star, not from the neutron star object itself. How likely is it then to have a neutron star surrounded by uh, a field of asteroids? I mean, you, you mentioned that uh, these neutron stars were formed through a supernova explosion, usually. Yes. Uh, and presumably that means all the stuff went bang outwards and there shouldn't yeah. be too much stuff left. That's a very good question. Um, and we're used to seeing these dramatic pictures of supernovae where the material is flying out at... 10,000 kilometers per second and producing these nice nebulae that we can see uh, with different telescopes. But um, not all the material is ejected. So people have done the, these simulation studies, uh, and it looks like there is what's called fallback material. Some of it simply does not have adequate speed to have, it doesn't have escape velocity. So some of that material falls back. It doesn't really fall back onto the collapsing object. Instead, it goes into orbit around that object. So it's very similar in many respects to what the solar system looked like early on. We had this object that was collapsing to form the sun, but there was also all this material that was in orbit in a disk that produced the planets, uh, that formed the planets. More or less the same geometry, the same picture that you can visualize that way, we think is what's happening around some of these neutron stars. So you have a fallback disk, that disk can then form rocks. Uh, the material in that disk is probably far too small to form planets. So that's why we tend to not see planets around neutron stars, uh, with one or two exceptions. Um, so that's the basic picture, is you've got this fallback material, uh, it cools off and becomes neutral instead of ionized. Uh, and it gradually forms rocks, maybe over a period of about 10,000 years. And then the material will migrate in. It's a, a standing question at the moment is uh, planetary formation, how do planets form around normal stars? And the big problem that people are having is how do you get uh, a pile of gas and dust to form little planetesimal objects and then forming planets? I mean, this sounds like a very similar sort of problem. So can your research, can if, if this theory is correct, can the rate at which bits of material, stellar material, form mm. and then fall onto a pulsar, which you can then measure because it turns it off every so often. Does that help right. us? Can we, is there some connection between um, two fields, do you think? It's hard to say, but I think the, the, the material that would be in a fallback disk is probably more metal-rich than the material that formed the solar system. The reason I say that is because the star that explodes to form the supernova and form the neutron star is... It has much heavier elements, uh, higher atomic numbers than, than your typical interstellar gas, as we call it. And, and the sun formed out of typical interstellar gas. It's a little unclear. I, I'm not sure if what we uh, would learn about pulsars tells us much about formation of planets like ours. But it certainly tells us about, well, the conditions around neutron stars, uh, how the radiation mechanisms work. I think that's useful information also for uh, perhaps understanding uh, objects that, were, that, that are yet to be discovered. One question which interests me, you mentioned that these pulsars are radiating strongly in the UV, million degrees on the surface. Yes. Can we actually see these in the UV? Can we get UV photometry on these things? Not so much the UV, but in X, the X-ray band, a number of pulsars have been seen um, 
And again, there are several emission mechanisms, one from the magnetosphere, another that's really the direct thermal radiation from the surface of the star. Hmm. So it's just the, the fact that it's hot, and that has been seen in maybe a few dozen objects. How many of these intermittent pulsars are known? Okay, there. Uh, this is new territory. Uh, we only know of about 20. And uh, the reason the number is so small is in part because we, you know, we haven't done all that great a job of surveying the Milky Way yet. And that's interesting because that means there are more objects to be discovered. But also they are intermittent, so they're harder to detect. So actually we need new types of telescopes uh, that will allow us to probe the sky very efficiently and discover these new things. Because presumably when you were first making the survey uh, of pulsars in, in the sky, you would assume, oh, there's a pulsar, it'll be there tomorrow, it'll be there next year. How were these intermittent pulsars discovered? Were, did people go back to a known pulsar position and it wasn't there, or did they turn off while we were looking at them? How, how, did they, how were they discovered as being intermittent? Well, there are actually several different kinds, but the ones that were discovered recently are ones that are very intermittent. They're usually off. Uh, they may be on for... A, they may emit a couple of pulses and then be off for hours, that type of thing. And so if, so if you imagine that you've got the Milky Way peppered with these kinds of objects, in some sense it doesn't matter where you look. You can be scanning the sky. So in the course of doing, uh, of taking data for ordinary pulsar surveys, you can look at the data with different computer algorithms to uh, to try to find the intermittent ones. And basically, before about 19, uh, let's say the mid-1990s, nobody bothered to do that kind of analysis. Uh, we started doing it in the 1990s at Cornell, and, and then one of my students uh, helped reprocess some of the data taken for a major survey done in Australia, and that's the analysis that discovered this new class of objects. That's very exciting stuff. So intermittent pulsars as a research topic for you is part of a larger research interest of the time-variable universe. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay, well, that's a, a hot area, uh, not just in radio astronomy, but pretty much all across the spectrum, uh, from radio to optical to X-rays and gamma rays. And what we've come to realize, really, and it's not a new idea by any means. Uh, we, I think many people have heard of gamma ray bursts. Uh, they were discovered by accident by spy satellites, basically, uh, looking for gamma rays from atomic explosions. And lo and behold, these satellites detected bursts coming from above, not coming from below. You know, that's a, a great um, historical example of the discovery of things that go boom in the night. And uh, the, I think the point is it's, hard, it's much harder to study the sky if, as you say, we can't count on um, an object uh, appearing uh, and being observable uh, from one day to the next. So instead, if you've got things that are highly intermittent, well, number one, we don't really know what the universe looks like in any kind of detailed way all across the electromagnetic spectrum. So why is it important to look across the whole spectrum? Well, the sky looks different uh, at different wavelengths or in the radio band compared to gamma rays and optical. And some objects appear in only one or a few of those bands, not all of them. So if you want a comprehensive view of what's out there, you pretty much need to cover the whole spectrum. And as I said, it's much harder to do that. And so that means continuously we have to improve the improved telescopes. So one of the, there's a project for optical astronomy called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. It's supposed to come online sometime next decade, and it will be doing a comprehensive mapping of the sky. It'll map the, the whole available sky every night over and over again, looking for these transient sources, if you want to call them that. Comprehensive is sort of uh, um, an understatement, isn't it? It's like a vacuum cleaner. Does, does, does the whole sky every night, or at least the whole sky it can see, the whole sky it every see. night. It's remarkable. That's right. And so in terms of the data, these things are very data intensive. So that particular project, it'll generate something like 10,000 gigabytes of data every night, which sounds crazy to us now, but 
five, eight years from now, it'll seem very simple to deal with. So that's one aspect of it for the optical. For the radio, radio wavelengths, there are several projects now, um, telescopes being built or planned. Uh, one of them is in Australia called the Murchison Wide Field Array, uh, operating at frequencies close to the FM band, actually, and it will be able to survey uh, the sky in a, at any instant. It'll be looking at many tens of square degrees, so a big chunk of the sky at any one time. So if there are these intermittent transient things, uh, they will certainly be seen. And we're, and we're sure that there are, because we know of, we already know of some classes of such, such objects. But the really exciting thing is that I would say it's guaranteed we'll find new things. And what those might be, well, if they're really new, how can we predict? But you can speculate, and I would say something along the lines of maybe uh, some kinds of planets that are orbiting close to their stars will produce intermittent radiation. Jupiter actually does that in, in our solar system, but it's because of its orbiting satellite EO, uh, which orbits close to Jupiter, there's this intermittency. But the same thing could be true for extrasolar planets. Uh, so that's one, you know, one class of object uh, which you can, you know, is guaranteed to exist, I think. The question is, how bright are they? Can we detect them? Another one, a real wild card, I think, is other civilizations that are out there. They may be transmitting FM radio like we do, analogously, or they might be transmitting radar signals the way we do for our aircraft, uh, but also, it's this is one of the things that my my former colleague Carl Sagan used to talk about. Uh, any advanced civilization will have to guard its planet against asteroid impacts, and one of the best ways to track asteroids is with radar. So you bounce radio signals off them, you can determine their orbits, and you can then check whether that asteroid is on a collision course or not. So those kinds of radars are very powerful and they could be seen across great distances in the galaxy. So you're speculating that uh, extraterrestrial intelligence will be using this sort of system to be making sure that that asteroid coming towards their planet is actually going to miss them. That's exactly right, and it's rampant speculation, but it's a plausible kind of thing. And, it w of course, we would see this very intermittently. Hmm. It would, we would have to be looking in the right direction at the right time in order to detect those things. And then there are other astrophysical type objects that you can think about. So that, that array in Australia is one example. Another one that actually Michael Kramer and I uh, are working on together is the planning for the square kilometer array, uh, which will be built starting sometime next decade. That'll be operating at somewhat higher frequencies. But one of the things I'm really pushing for is that it have this capability of characterizing the sky in this time variable way, uh, the intermittent way. And so I like to kind of paraphrase Heraclitus, who said, you don't step in the same river twice, and what I would say is you don't see the same universe twice. Exciting stuff, isn't it? I mean, they do say that you build a new telescope, you observe in a new wavelength band, you observe the universe again and again every night, you're bound to learn something new. I mean, that, that will bring new science, so it's exciting times. It really is, and that's, I think, what attracts many people into astronomy uh, because it's, it's high-tech, for one thing, but it's also you're probing nature in the most fundamental way. Let's talk about one more uh, transient phenomena. Let's talk about rats. Oh, okay. rats. Well, rats we, we kind of talked about already. Those are the rotating, it, it's RRAT, rotating radio transient. Um, these were the objects that were found um, in this reanalysis of, of other survey data uh, and where just a few pulses were seen hmm. from a given direction. So initially it wasn't clear what, you know, what kind of objects these were. You know, were they just one-off type bursts or were they repetitive? So by reanalyzing, uh, sorry, by reobserving um, some of these objects once a burst was seen from a given direction on the sky, uh, some of them turned out to be repetitive, uh, the way a pulsar is, just more modulated or intermittent. And so it became natural to think that, well, there must be a rotating object that's accounting for those objects. And 
So instead of calling it a pulsar right away, rotating radio transient um, became the name. Hmm. Um, so now you see when people give talks about these objects, they have little cartoons of uh, rats and uh, <laughs> of the rodent type uh, on their view graphs or slides. But some of them, it isn't so clear whether they're the same kind of object because we haven't seen them repeat. Hmm. And for me, it'd be more exciting if it's something besides a neutron star, <laughs> actually. Very good. We'll wait for the uh, the jury to come back in on that one. Right. Now, you've done uh, observations at Arecibo. That's is, correct. Which is a wonderful instrument. And do tell us a little bit about what it's like to observe in Arecibo. Well, Arecibo is in the tropics, so it's it's in the mountainous region of Puerto Rico. Uh, it's built into a sinkhole. This still is, Arecibo still is the world's largest aperture and, uh, as an antenna. And so a, as such, it's, it's an incredibly powerful telescope, especially good for pulsar work. It's great to go there. It has a long history of fostering an experimental aspect of uh, using technology, do, basically doing experiments uh, with instrumentation and looking at the sky in new ways, as well as doing uh, more routine things. So it's, it's a great place because it is so sensitive, and it has this experimental aspect to it. Um, right now, uh, with funding in the U.S., it's, it's Arecibo and uh, some other telescopes are under threat of being closed down. And so what we're trying to do at Cornell is to find a, uh, a new business model uh, that will allow Arecibo to keep going. Would that include private sponsorship or sale of time to other institutions? How, how, where do you get money to run something like Arecibo? Yeah, it's difficult because in the U.S., and I think this is true around the world, radio astronomy has been funded, funded by governments, uh, scientific funding agencies, the National Science Foundation in the case of the U.S., and that's been true ever since World War II. Uh, we live in different times now, and, and if you look at, uh, if, if by comparison you look at the optical community, optical telescopes, well, many of them have been funded privately, at least in the U.S. And so, what the the National Science Foundation uh, is now promoting is basically partnerships, where it may be some mixture of private and public funding. Uh, but we need to take the first step on that. And I think just given the overall financial times, maybe especially this last week, uh, we need to be creative on how we do this. But we have a lot going for us because astronomy of, of all types appeals to many people. And so it, as such, it gets a lot of support from the public. And there may be ways of attracting some private money uh, for that purpose, Easier said than done, but we have to try. Indeed. Well, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us today. Oh, glad to do it, Nick. So there you go. You don't observe the same universe twice. And talking of things that go bump in the night, here's Ian Morrison with the night sky for October. Hello, everybody. And we'll now consider what you might be able to see in the night sky this month of October. Just before I start, I think a bit of interesting news... A sunspot has been seen on the sun. We're currently, we've been in a transitional region or period between the last solar cycle and the next one. These are typically about 11 years long, during which the solar activity and hence the number of sunspots rises fairly quickly over a period of about four years and then falls more slowly to the end of that cycle. In fact, the period between the last cycle and this is around 350 days and that's somewhat longer than the typical which is about 250 days and so it's perhaps slightly encouraging that a sunspot's been seen not a very obvious one actually it's most obvious in some of the things like the magnetograms rather than the visible images of the sun but it is there and that could herald the start of the next solar cycle in which case the maximum will probably occur in about 2012 and then tailing off after that. Also interesting, there's a spacecraft called Ulysses that's actually monitoring the solar wind, which is another measure of solar activity. And that's now at its lowest for the last 50 years. So the sun's been a bit quiet. And uh, if it stayed quiet, as it has done in the past, that could have 
a significant effect on what is now called climate change or global warming. It might counteract some of the effects of the CO2 we're putting into the atmosphere. So what, what I'm saying is just keep an eye. Um, you can put SOHO spacecraft into Google and see the latest pictures. And let's see in the next few months if the number of sunspots increases. Okay, well, the nights are drawing in, and not only can you see the sky after sunset in relatively early evening now, but also it's still dark, at least when I, I get up. And this morning I had a wonderful view of Leo and Orion in the south, and in fact rising in the east was a lovely thin crescent moon, a waning crescent moon. So there are some nice things to see in the morning sky, as we'll see later on. Uh, setting towards the west as uh, nightfall begins is a very nice area of sky, Cygnus, Lyra and Aquila the Eagle. Um, I've talked about these quite considerably over the summer. Those the three brightest stars, Deneb, Vega and Altair, form what's called the Summer Triangle, but we can still see it, uh, in fact, in October. And if you want to learn more about that area of the sky, just go back to some of the earlier um, pod jodcasts uh, this year and you can just pick up the part where I talk about them. Over towards the south in the mid-evening we have fairly high in the south the square of Pegasus which is an upside down winged horse. Up to its left is Andromeda, in fact the top left star of the square of Pegasus is actually called Alpha Andromedae so it's part of the Andromeda constellation and in there lies the galaxy M31, and I'll mention that a bit later in the highlights of the month. Up to the left of that is uh, the constellation Persis, and it, to its upper right is the constellation Cassiopeia. If you look with binoculars between Cassiopeia and Perseus, you should find a rather fuzzy, bright area of sky. It looks, that looks lovely in powerful binoculars. It's called the Double Cluster and there are two close open clusters. You can see it with your unaided eye, but binoculars will show it very well. It's a lovely, very rich region of the Milky Way. Uh, below the square of Pegasus is Pisces, and we also have uh, Cetus over to the lower left, and I'm going to come back to Cetus again in the highlights. So quite interesting constellations to look at, and uh, as the night goes by, if you're prepared to get up early in the morning, you actually get round to the constellations of Orion and Taurus. And if you pick up a, a Jodcast, probably something like January, February, if they're still there, you can learn about those constellations as well. So let's move on to the planets this month. Um, Jupiter is still seen low in the southwest as nightfall begins, but its elevation won't be more than about 10 degrees. So you are looking at it through a lot of atmosphere, and that really doesn't help the images we see with our telescopes. But you could still quite easily see the Galilean satellites as they weave their way around it. It starts October at an angular size of 39.3 arc seconds, which slowly reduces, and its magnitude is about minus 2.3. So it is certainly the brightest object low in the sky in the southwest. The next planet, Saturn. Well, that uh, is now visible in the pre-dawn sky, and is seen higher in elevation before dawn as the month progresses. Actually, it's going to be best seen at the very end of the month. So if you look out at about 0500 UT, uh, it reaches an elevation of 25 degrees. Its magnitude is, is plus one, which is not as much as it normally is. And that's because, if you look at it, you might even say, is that really Saturn? Because the rings are becoming closer and closer aligned to the plane of the Earth, which means that we see them at a, a shallower and shallower angle. Uh, and next year, they'll actually be totally edge-on, they'll be invisible for a while. So you don't see the rings very extensively, and that, of course, means that they're not reflecting any light back to us, and so Saturn appears much less bright than it normally does. Um, you will quite easily, with binoculars even, pick out its satellite Titan, and with a telescope of a few inches diameter aperture, you can pick out a few more. So that's going to come up in the highlight again later on. Uh, Mercury uh, passes between us and the Sun on the 6th of October, so there's actually no chance of seeing it in the early part of the month. But actually, it, it reappears quite soon in the pre-dawn sky, 
and it reaches what is called western elongation. That's when it's furthest an angle from the sun on the 22nd of the month. Now, in complete contrast to the last time it was visible low in the west after sunset, this time it's much higher in elevation and a much, much better chance of seeing. In fact, it's the best chance this year of seeing Mercury in the pre-dawn sky. So it might well be worth having a look for that. That comes up in a highlight. Mars is now so close to the Sun, you can't see it at all during the month. So we have to ignore Mars. Venus has been around for a while. It's seen, unfortunately, very low in the west after sunset, shining to magnitude about 3.8. It's gradually moving in angle away from the Sun, so it remains in the sky for longer after the Sun has set. But nevertheless, it's not as appearing as bright and as obvious to us as it often does because it doesn't really rise very much in elevation. The angular size is about 12.2 arc seconds. What happens is that that is gradually increasing, but the area of Venus that's being illuminated is reducing. Those two effects cancel out pretty well, so the brightness stays at about minus four for several months at a time, so that's quite interesting. Well, you can find more about planetary images in detail if you happen to want to go onto our Night Sky webpage on the Jodrell Bank website, and you can actually find links to information about the planets. Well, finally, let's have a look at some highlights, but then there's actually one extra part of the uh, section this month, and hopefully in continuing months, as we'll see. I mentioned that Saturn will be seen better later in the month, as will Mercury, and Around October the 26th, they're both fairly high in the sky. On the 26th, they're joined by a waning crescent moon. But the night before, the moon will be up to the right of Saturn. On the 26th, in the very early morning, it's going to lie between Saturn and Mercury. So that should be a very nice skyscape in the morning, about 90 minutes before dawn. One thing that you may never have tried to observe is one of the minor planets or asteroids. Now, they may now be called small solar system bodies, but nevertheless, I prefer the word minor planet. Though not the largest, Vesta is in fact the brightest. And at magnitude 6.5, it's fairly easy to see in a pair of binoculars if you know where to look. And during this month, it actually passes across the head of Cetus the Whale. And on the night sky, page on the Joel Bank website. I've given you both a chart to show you where to look for it, but also a template which would allow you, if you print it out, to plot the positions of the brighter objects within the head. And if you do that on a couple of nights, you should see, separated by a few days, you should see that one of these objects has moved. And that means you really have seen the minor planet Vesta. Last year, in fact, it was a bit closer at what's called opposition when it's nearest to us, and it was just visible to the unaided eye. But this year, I think you'll need binoculars. But that's a well worth thing to look for. Uh, last month, I pointed out that you could fairly easily find the Andromeda galaxy, and I gave a chart which is repeated on this uh, month's Night Sky page that shows how you can find it either starting from Alpha Andromedae, which is the top left-hand star of the square of Pegasus, you work round two stars, turn sharp right, and go up another two stars, and there it is. Or you can just follow down the V on the right-hand side of Cassiopeia. With binoculars, you'll certainly see an oval, fuzzy region, which actually is the core of Andromeda. But on a very dark night, you may well see a very pale, bright surrounding region, which are the outer um, spiral arms, and from a very dark sight in Wales on the last Sunday night before I'm speaking to you, there was a fantastic view with a pair of 15 by, by 50 binoculars. It can look really quite impressive, but the sky has to be very, very dark and no moon. So it's a worthwhile thing to look at if you haven't seen it before. Around October 21st, there's actually the Orionid meteor shower. It's not one of the most spectacular. There are only about 25, 20 or so um, meteors seen per hour. But they're interesting because it's believed that the meteors originate from Comet Halley. The problem this year is 
very close to what's called the radiant, where the meteors appear to diverge from, is in fact a fairly bright gibbous moon. So you would only really have a chance of seeing the brighter meteors. So I tell you it's there, it might be worth a try, but it's not going to be the best year to look for them. There's another object that many of you may not observe, and that's the, the planet Uranus, which has a magnitude of about 5.8. So really you need binoculars for it. Uh, again, I've actually put a chart on the website. It's very close to the star Phi Aquarii, and if you look um, basically in the, in the mid part of the evening, Aquarius is reasonably high in the sky, just to the uh, east of south, and you should have a chance to find it. With a telescope, you actually see a little blue-green disc just four arc seconds across, and it's rather nice to see it. So there we go. Um, I hope you'll have a, a good time observing the sky. We've had quite a few clear nights recently. Let's hope they remain. But before I finish, we've had quite a number of requests from people who live in the southern hemisphere. Could we say something about what they can see? So here's a very quick summary. Uh, Jupiter is low in the west, just above the heart of the Milky Way. That's the constellation of Sagittarius and the rather nice little teapot that you can see there with lots of very beautiful objects. Sadly, in the Northern Hemisphere, they're so low on the horizon where we live in, in England, we don't see them very well, but you see them much better in the Southern Hemisphere. Fairly high in the south, coming up towards almost overhead, are the large and small Magellanic clouds, which are two nearby irregular galaxies that some people think, most people think, are orbiting our own Milky Way galaxy. I read recently that some people aren't quite so sure about that. They might just be passing by. Nevertheless, you see them as little sort of milky clouds in the sky. Now, if you look just to the right of the small Magellanic cloud, that's the less bright one, you should see, certainly with binoculars, a little misty blob. And that's 47 Takani, which is one of the two most spectacular globular clusters that one can see in the Southern Hemisphere and well worth having a look. The other's in Omega Centauri, but not really so visible at the present time. Andromeda is low in the north, to the lower right of the square of Pegasus. Now, in the north, we see the square of Pegasus upside down, but you see it the right way up. So it's worthwhile picking out Andromeda. And the chart that I have, if you just sort of rotate it round through 180 degrees, should help you find it. Finally, Vesta, I mentioned, which is crossing through the heart of Cetus the Whale, is also visible up and to the left of Pegasus. So again, given the chart on the night sky page, you could actually find that by turning things upside down. I hope that I've got that all right, because it's actually quite difficult for us to try and get a feel of what you would see in the other hemisphere. Everything goes the wrong way, if not just upside down as well. So I hope I've got that right. I'll try and pick out at least one or two things that you can look for each month in the coming months. Good hunting. Thanks, Ian. And uh, if you have any suggestions as to where you would like covered in your night sky, then do let us know. As usual, you can get, with a, get in touch with us via the web and via Facebook. You know the drill. So that's all from us for this episode of the Jodcast. Thank you very much for listening and do tune in for the next episode in two weeks' time. Thanks very much to Jim Cordes for his interview and for everybody who sent us feedback. Until next time, jod on, people. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. And you can still give me all this twice a month. Oh, yes.